Hello, and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 15, Hayden, Carson, and Egress. Today, I'm talking with Hayden and Carson, who are co-DMs on uh, a campaign, which is pretty cool. We haven't had that yet. Why don't you both uh, introduce yourselves, uh, talk a little bit about who you are outside of D&D. Hayden, why don't you go first? Yeah. So outside of D&D, I'm actually a therapist. Um, been doing that for a few years now. <clears throat> and cool. then, uh, yeah, before I started doing this, uh, I did software testing and a bunch of other things. Uh, and that is actually where Carson and I met is back in college. Uh, we were roommates. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yep. That's where a lot of our D and D stuff actually started was back in college. We currently play with a different group. Um, but yeah, we were roommates for a while. I'm Carson. I currently work in the IT department for a credit union, and uh, I'm almost finished up with school here for that field. So, okay, and I didn't know there was additional school beyond college for IT and credit unions. Well, see, Hayden's much more focused and got done far earlier than I did. <laughs> ah, yes, okay, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with that. All right, um, well, cool. That's that's a good field to be in for sure. So I'm guessing you guys got into D&D at the same time in college, is that right? Uh, Kind of. Uh, I know Carson played for a while before I did, and it was actually after we were done being roommates that he messaged me and said, hey, I'm doing this D&D thing. Uh, Do you want to give it a try? And I said, sure, I'll try anything once. And here we are, like, what is it? Three years later, almost. Uh, I think it's more than that. I've been really. Here and... Am I old? <laughs> You're getting old, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I've played a few times with some friends from high school, um, and then those games had the tendency of not sticking around very long. They had a very short lifespan, so oh. I decided I'll do one myself, and uh, that turned out pretty well. And I brought Aiden into it because I thought he would be a fun addition to our table. We actually had a, a smaller existing group and brought him in partway through um, and stuck around ever since. All right, cool. Yeah, that's that's actually fairly typical to get started in college with, with a roommate. That is how my dad got started as well. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, plenty of other people that have been on the podcast as well. Oh, I'm, I'm glad it's a way to maintain that friendship you guys have. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things we talk about most. Yep. Sometimes too much. <laughs> uh, what about uh, DMing? How did that get started for you guys doing the, the co-DMing thing? Uh, so um, that's actually relatively new. Um, traditionally, I've run games. Hayden ran a game on his own uh, as well. And then we kind of were... I don't remember exactly what started the conversation, but we kind of moved and started creating a world as sort of a fun aside thing. And worked out that we were going to try to code DM in the the new world that we're making that we became more excited about. I don't know. Hayden probably remembers it slightly differently than I do. No, I mean, that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think the only thing I'd add to that is that, yeah, we created this world and we're just like, this place is really freaking cool. Uh, let's go find some people to actually play in it now. Uh, so we we didn't really know who was going to play in this world when we created it. 
Um, it was yeah. different than the group that we previously had run with. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the creation process for that? Because usually it's like, you know, one person's doing everything and they just work on whatever they feel like. Um, The word messy comes to mind. Uh to give a little bit of insight into the the creative process the the first document that we created uh to to kind of start documenting things was just simply named terrible ideas for egress and the Um, second document was called actually terrible ideas for egress where we put our really outlandish (laughs) ideas i was actually going to that exact same place aiden so yeah i guess creation process i remember carson brought up that he was toying around with uh you know different different ideas for what a world could be and different cultures throughout earth's history have had their own conceptualizations of what the universe and what the earth is um images of like the you know the earth on the back of a giant sea turtle came to mind and Uh so we started toying around with you know what what is a what is a new version of that um that we could create a world in and like basically build a mythology and then make it real sort of thing yeah okay and so what we eventually came up with is it would be really cool take a antlion trap um in the desert you know all the sand funneling down in um to a central point and then what if that's what was happening with the people is that the, that's kind of a metaphor for the life cycle i guess and okay really just the ideas spider webbed out from there that that was a terrible pun hayden you should be ashamed yeah, that's what, what i was thinking i i don't know what you're talking about but yeah the first <laughs> words we actually wrote down into a document for the setting was quote world is a spider trap it's not even a sentence <laughs> um but the, the process is basically we'll talk about different things, throw out different ideas, and then we'll find little facets, especially as the world became more developed. We'd have specific topics to talk about, and we'd explore that topic in detail and kind of just roll a brainstorm off each other for interesting ideas. Um, okay, so it sounds like it was a pretty collaborative process, and you weren't really like splitting up the, the work on it. Like, yeah. I yeah. Know, Carson, you work on this country and Hayden works on another country or something like that. Yeah. I actually, I think that was one of our conversations was the fact that when we had done just some minor collaborative work on stuff, like we make each other's ideas a lot better. Um, definitely, you know, two plus two equals five situation. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. We, we considered, you know, we'll split things up, but when you can bounce an idea off someone else, they can see it areas where it falls short and areas where it excels that you overlook and it you can just make a more solid package working as a team might be different if there was a whole bunch of collaborators but with only two of us it makes more sense to just collaborate on basically every aspect Mm -hmm. yeah i did a collaborative world building with my friends um where there's a there's a game for that called dawn of worlds Mm. that is designed to build fantasy worlds for either for playing a role-playing game or for writing novels in if you want to do that with it it's got like this whole like point generation system and how you spend points to create different things like building a city and it has different phases where like the first phase is about things that gods are doing and then it switches to 
you know, it sort of scales down in like the legendary impact of what's happening. Interesting. I've seen a title similar to that where it's about kingdoms and their politics, but uh, yeah, we. I think once upon a time I actually mentioned we could try playing a game like that among a group and then playing a D&D game within that setting. That never actually happened, but it's a cool idea. Yeah, uh, that was our intention is that we were going to do that so we'd all have like ownership of the, the world that we were creating and we'd be more interested in telling stories in that world. Um, it has largely been abandoned since we constructed it. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> all right, well, yeah, let, let's talk about your, your sand trap world. So the give us a physical description of what it's like. I'll, I'll take this one. Um, so yeah, so the the world is largely circular, uh, surrounded by ocean um you you could think flat earth we know better but uh that would be an apt description for for this world um and with that kind of came a lot of funny climate and other kind of concessions that we had to make on making it make sense still uh -huh. um i don't know carson what would you add to that so an example of the climate issue is how do seasons work if there is no planet on a tilt? We got to have an alternative. Um, and basically it's that there aren't really seasons for the most part. Uh, weather is regional rather than, you know, actual weather patterns. Um, and that just has to do with the, the nature of the world. It's an inherently magical construct. And so weird things like this happen because they were designed to do that, not by us, but by entities within the universe. Mm -hmm. They yeah. they thought this area should be rainy, so it rains here. <laughs> Type of thing. Yeah. At, at some point it just becomes, well, just because it is. And yeah. Kind of, that's kind of true for science as well as fantasy worlds. Yeah, it's turtles all the way down. Like, you know. <laughs> um, what's interesting here is it's basically a single continent surrounded by ocean and the continent is following that same spider trap shape where it all slopes down towards the center point um with the exception of mountains and hills and all that that's still there breaking up line of sight but if you were to stand on the coast and look toward the center you can see the majority of the continent just because it's in a bizarre shape so you can see hundreds of miles to the other side um, which led to interesting things like people building watchtowers along the coast so they can look out from high vantage points with binoculars and telescopes to s try and, you know, see where other people are, watch for armies or whatever else it is. Okay, that's interesting because then you'd be limited by the, I forget what this concept is called, but how much you can magnify light to be able to see something that far away. Yeah, yep. <clears throat> So there must be like mountains around the coast to keep the the ocean out. So um, sort of. <laughs> yeah, the 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 ocean's just a few feet below, you know, the the coast, I guess in in my mind. Uh there's like some hills and stuff in some areas, but uh there's because it's not uh you know, the world's not rotating or anything. There's not really weather patterns outside. The ocean really is just still. So there wouldn't be risk of like a tsunami coming in or giant flood. It you know it just is. There's enough there to prevent like the the pressure of the ocean from 
pushing in, flooding the whole space, but it's not like massive, tall cliffs along every outside edge. It's more like a a big bump, and then it leads into a regular shoreline. Okay. Now, what's interesting is the ocean is fresh water, no salt water, and the mm. rivers, for the most part, don't originate from mountains. They originate from the coast and head inland. Okay, so do you have different animal life in the in the lake because of that? <laughs> um, yes, you'll see a variety of different types of animals living in all sorts of bodies of water. The ocean's interesting because outside of the first couple miles of shoreline, it's just a, a dead zone. There's nothing living out there. Um, well, honestly, the same thing is pretty true within the real ocean as well. Yeah. <laughs> Are people able to sail outward? Because you said it's flat. There's nothing really stopping them. But is there no wind either? Yeah, so I, I guess to answer that, and I think we we might be leaving out some of the more interesting part about our world that might give some more context to everything. Um, would Would you care if we kind of jumped into some of the cosmology and... Uh, the gods and kind of how we got to the point where the players are playing. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, we can uh, we can jump around to wherever you want to go, and yeah. we can also skip over things if you want to like keep it a secret from your players who might be listening. Yeah, we're purposely not telling them about it now because we wanted to be pretty candid with everything <laughs> else, and I think we'll come back to the other questions. It'll just make a lot more sense within the context of the yeah. rest of everything. Okay, yeah, let's get into the, the cosmology and the, the gods and religion and all that. Why don't you get us started, Hayden? Um, so yeah, so the, the idea is that Egress is the name of the world. Egress is also the name of the god that created the world. So um, there's, there's some other stuff that I guess I, I would say that we haven't totally decided on kind of where Egress comes from. We've, we've got some good ideas down, but where I'll, where I'll start with it... Um, is that egress created the world um, off of two principles that would have been balance and law. And there's actually two sides to it. The, our campaign takes place on the, you know, quote unquote, good side. Um, but there'd also be a hell side to it as well that would be home to, you know, your devils and those uh, yeah, devilish creatures um, mm -hmm. that are more evil-leaning. Um, so on the good side of egress, it is everybody else kind of what you'd expect so the the idea with this is that um, egress wanted to create a perfectly balanced world where people could live the best life of whatever of whoever they are so you would live your life when then you would die um you'd essentially be judged and then you could be shuffled to the opposite side if over the course of your life you've changed enough to where the hell side would be more comfortable for you and it's not like a you are being condemned and cast down into hell type of thing this is you genuinely enjoy the the scheming and the lying and the brutal competition and you you thrive in that environment and so they send you into that environment where you are you're kind of playing the game right you're you're miserable but you're happy to be miserable if that makes sense <laughs> um, because you have a chance to win. You can win big and be the lord of whatever as you've succeeded in scheming and dominating your enemies, but you sometimes lose, and that's okay. You're you're just here because it suits you. Mm -hmm. 
or the opposite, you've uh, got tired of losing time and time and time again, and you can now see the uh, the virtues of just being a decent person and being nice, and so you're going to go give the other side a try for a while. Yeah, okay, I can kind of see that like in a, a long a long-term scope of a soul where going to the hell side would be kind of like going to a soccer game because there's more competition and it's more fun to be in that environment for a little while, but you don't want to be constantly running around competing, so you need that break in the, the good side. It's just where your development's taking you and how your last life led up, because it's a reincarnation type of thing, and you don't retain really anything from your previous life. Um, you're a fresh slate when you're reborn, but you're reborn into whatever side is most apt for your soul based on how you've been up until this point. Right. And so the, the cycle that we created on the, the good side will probably talk primarily about that from now on because that's kind of all the information we have on the on the hell side but the the cycle goes something like every 10 years um there is a big uh holiday it is is the main holiday for the world and up until that holiday the 10 years previous to that anybody that dies their soul resides in the very center of egress in the abyss and then during this holiday, uh, you know, big celestial things going on, and essentially all of the souls uh, flush to the center, are judged in a moment by the god Egress, and then shuffled back to the side that they belong on. And so we did some other kind of fun things with that to where uh, when the souls are sent back to their appropriate sides, that is the year when people can actually reproduce, um, you know, children and uh creatures that live long enough are, are born during that time and so it uh you know very very different world than what it eventually uh comes to later and so we we haven't thought too much more about kind of what that era is is like we've called that the timeless era um but where things kind of start getting interesting is when you know chaotic demonic entities from the cosmos come in and start interfering with the workings of egress. And that's, I'd say with our world building, that is when we got that idea is really when the rest of this, um, like I said, got more interesting is what, what happens when this cycle gets messed up, just how bad can it get? And then how would the races respond when, when things do go bad? Uh, question before we get to that is, is there like a finite number of souls? So that's why people are waiting? Yes. Yep. Okay. So it's it's an interesting time, um, the timeless period, which is ancient, ancient history, just to be clear. That's not where we're currently playing time-wise. Um, Timeline-wise, if I can speak. Right. But um, lost my train of thought entirely. It's gone. Uh, I've got another question. Are the souls just for like sentient species or do like does a does a dog have a soul that would be part of this reincarnation process living things all have them and what's interesting here is you're like some things only live three days how do they fit into this 10-year timeline smaller souls can basically leak through the membrane and transfer at all times it's only more significant ones like humanoids that get stuck at the reservoir and are born every 10 years Okay, so like a, a squirrel could leak through, and obviously insects. Yeah. Um, is it? Does it include plants as well? 
Uh, most plants, I don't think were. I we didn't really decide on that 100%, but I believe it was pretty much like your things with a mind is essentially okay. what it is. So some of those plant monsters. Yeah. But not... yeah. I guess a good way to differentiate is, is creatures that could be considered having like a good or evil personality would have to go through that process. And those just so happen to a lot of them live longer than 10 years. Okay. Um, and maybe you'll cover this later if you want to talk about the, the demons that are invading, but I was curious about undead and more like immortal species like dragons and elves and that kind of thing as well. That is you've all critical. Some, you've got some very good questions that will be answered. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're dead on the money. Those are exactly things that are related to the demonic invasion. Hey, do you want, do you want to do some world building sometime? This is a lot what our process is like. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what Hayden was talking about, where things really get interesting... At a certain point in this timeless area that lasts millennia and all, to be clear all of your races that you expect from classic dungeons and dragon fantasy are present you got the elves and the dwarves and the orcs they're all here and they're all very much what you'd expect um kind of generic in the timeless era not on purpose but when okay. demons invade everything changes um the main thing that happens is not like an army from hell that you may have seen in other works where it's a, a war. This was more of a crippling of the cycle that we've talked about, this 10-year rebirth cycle. And so it's no longer functioning at all. And the response from Egress to this crippling of the cycle is what kind of defines everything past that ancient history mark things no longer get judged every 10 years they're judged as soon as possible because demons are trying to cons consume or corrupt the souls involved and the less time they spend on either side the less susceptible they will be to that corruption so the 10 year cycle shatters and there's basically a timer set on life. Think of it that a you know young, healthy body with a young, healthy mind is the most impervious to the demonic presence, influencing them, possessing them, um, corrupting their souls. And so egress begins artificially um, shortening the life of every single race to allow this to happen. And so uh, one of the cool things that we did is, so humans were the least affected, you know, they live, you know, 10 to 15 years less than average. And the elves, on the other hand, instead of living maybe a millennia, live about 100 years on average. And so think of just everything that you know about all of these, you know, classic high fantasy races. And then our question was, well, what what happens when all of your elders in the course of you know 50 100 years are all dead what would that do to the elves what would it do to the dwarves when all their master engineers and miners and leaders of their culture are just gone and you're left with people that are you know the equivalent of maybe being in their 20s or 30s as now your your eldest people and again this for egress this is just a way of protecting the souls from corruption 
but it required um, what we are calling the longing, which I guess you could call it a psychological condition that when you get old enough, you get this urge to go to the abyss and essentially cast yourself inside um, and die so that then your soul can be reused um, and shuffled back across. The other cool thing that this does for the world is egress no longer has the luxury of keeping the good and evil side separated. It's whatever side needs a soul to keep the two balanced. That is where you go. And so that good evil balance is uh, messed up fairly significantly now. It's degraded over thousands of years. Okay, so the the timeless age, this was actually something I was thinking about when you described it, is that, ooh, a bunch of souls gathered together must be a great resource that someone bad might want, want to <laughs> steal. Sounds like that happened, uh, or at least tried to happen. Yep, um, more or less. And what you mean about the the system degrading is that Originally, the good side was sort of utopian, and the bad side was dystopian, but I guess it depends on your frame of view for that, as you said. Um, and now that souls are just going where, you know, there's a pregnancy that can take them or wherever that reproduction works, um, that's causing good souls to end up on the bad side and bad souls to end up on the good side. Is that about what you're describing there? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Okay. All right. And like in the Timeless era, it's not a clean cut of all evil, all bad. It's you are on the 50% that's more evil and you're on the 50% that's more good. Um, so there's a lot of gray area there where people get caught in the middle. But uh, yeah, you, you basically got the process correct. Okay, got it, got it. Uh, so these demons that are doing this process, are they just trying to get more power by stealing people's souls? What's their goal here? The demons are related to one of the other gods of the cosmos, uh, representing chaos itself. And because egress represents law, the goal is not necessarily to consume the souls to use them for anything, but just to destroy what egress is and represents okay all right i guess we have gods with just megalomaniac evil yeah it's the god of chaos and so he's fundamentally op opposed to law and chaos destroys law and that's really all there is to it um the this is more like a subconscious thing rather than a directed effort okay it sounds like there's, is there just the two gods? Is there egress and chaos? Is that, is that it? There were more, but they are no longer with us, so to speak. <laughs> um, in fact, egress is the only living god. Chaos is deceased, and the demons are basically the remnants of chaos. Oh. Um, and all the other gods out there are also destroyed. Egress is the last of them. And that whole area is kind of blurry. We haven't gone too much into detail for that whole zone, but that describes the basics of it. Okay. I was curious how a bunch of demons could be a problem for a god. Um, I, I guess in your universe, the god isn't strong enough to really challenge them or keep them out. Yeah, it's sort of... He's contending with another god, just not another god whose mind exists, right? Right. Um, okay. so it's kind of an even matchup. 
um, a classic like mythology chaos was the first god and so egress is more like a, a younger deity who just happens to be the last one standing i also like to think of it as as egress is you know spending all of their attention in the kitchen cooking up this awesome cool world and then is asked to go herd cats <laughs> yeah this is kind of um esoteric bit of detail but this rendition of the world the timeless era was not attempt one for egress uh, if you were to dig deep enough below the surface you would find all sorts of strange abominations of experiments that didn't work out okay was that uh so like, i don't know if you read the order of the stick comic mm -hmm. but there's this idea there that very similar to this there's an outside force called the snarl that's destroying worlds over and over again and the gods are building new worlds to actually as a a prison for the snarl and then it eventually breaks free and they have to build another one and they keep having to do that over and over again that's um, funny that's and at one point one of the gods shows that to one of the pcs in the comic and shows how many worlds they've created before and it's like a uh gravestone it's a graveyard with like thousands of graves <laughs> that's somewhat similar to the the solo campaign i was running when i was uh the only dm not doing your right. dm thing but different but some similar concepts there yeah. um okay. so yeah i guess we can we can quickly go through the rest of the uh history to kind of what leads up to now so um, the era after the timeless era would have been the unraveling. And this is just kind of what I described what happens when the system breaks. Um, how bad does it actually get? Uh, after that, it's the age of desolation. It's when races kind of start to recover from things. And, you know, people naturally were terrified of the abyss as it stole all of their loved ones uh, many years too early. And so people kind of either hid underground or hid behind hills for a, a very long time. We're very superstitious over what power the Abyss actually had over them. Um, that led on to the Warmonger era where people, um, rulers, established themselves and the humans were the most prolific here. Again, the humans were the least affected by the by the longing and, and their species um, surviving you know, shorter lives than, than, than before. And so the humans are very prolific in, in waging war against other people. And they're just kind of widespread war across egress as people vied for power and sought to establish control of any sort. Um, after people warred for a long enough time, we, we had this fun, uh, plot line within our, within our world building that we're calling the days of the dragon King, where it kind of turned into this uh, man versus God um, conflict where everybody kind of gathered all of their power together to grow a dragon. And we'll get into that eventually, how, how you can grow a dragon. Um, but up to, uh, I mean, just colossal, colossal pr proportions for this dragon to challenge the abyss itself. Um, but as with everybody else, if you don't cast yourself into the abyss, you literally lose your mind and are then susceptible to 
a demon possessing you. And that's essentially what happens. And the, the dragon King, uh, just annihilates the entire Eastern side of the continent. Um, from losing its mind while having the most power that's ever been gathered in one in one spot uh which is kind of a cool thing that we we had a lot of fun with um from there uh it, we call it the reclamation the building back of everything races kind of settled down there's some more wars and stuff uh in our world this is when the um dwarves betray the elves and kind of create that classic um elves and and dwarves don't really like each other type of thing. We create some have, extra uh... sub races of the elves that we thought were pretty fun. Uh, but this leads up to the golden era, uh, which is the current era that we're in. And this is when uh, the, the use of gold for power is more widely established, more widely agreed upon uh, continent wide on kind of, kind of the rules of that. And then instead of, you know, dragons, uh, subjugating humans underneath them for war you know building up armies and things or the opposite you know a, a, a general with a, a massive army taking control of a dragon to use it against other people um cities and their dragons are fairly equal in power and uh we created this thing that's kind of fun where um dragons are actually a personification of the culture of the city that they reside in um and so their personality is very similar to the 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 broader culture uh where they reside. Okay. Uh so like a fire-breathing dragon would come from a city that's famous for hot-tempered people or something like that. Uh I don't think we went that direction. Uh It was I... less about like what element they use and more about what they actually think and act like. Uh Okay. Dragons are weird in this universe they aren't born from other dragons dragons are the category of thing that spontaneously arises whenever you have a sufficient amount of gold and people in the same place they just spawn out of the horde so if you have a mountain of gold in a city nearby a dragon will arise given enough time so they're very okay. bizarre <laughs> um is it like an egg, or is it just like, pop, there's a dragon at some point? Pop, there's a dragon. Okay. It's an egression uh, child's uh, nursery rhyme, if I remember <laughs> right. Yeah. Pop goes the dragon? Yep. Yep, that was it. Uh, I had a question about something earlier. Um, so you mentioned that the, the bad side of egress had devils on it. And then demons from outside. Is that that like classic split between devils and demons in the monster manual or something else going on there? Nope, you, you hit it right on the head. Yeah. Okay. Demons are chaos and devils are lawful, but they're also wicked by nature. So they've basically all stayed on the opposite side of egress because of the way they are. Gotcha. Um and you mentioned the the longing is a way to prevent demons from possessing people as they get older and more susceptible to that possession, which um, sounds an awful lot like uh, dementia, which has that same demon word for particle to it. Yeah. Um, is that kind of where you were going with that? I don't think it was inspired that way, but basically the idea is if you don't get on with it and go to the abyss your mind will unravel 
And so if you are unable to, say you're detained, um, you'll go mad. And it varies on how you do so. It could resemble dementia. Others, it could be violent mania. It just depends. Okay. Um, and you mentioned humans becoming the dominating force in that initial collapse where the ancestral knowledge of all of the longer-lived races disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um what about other short-lived races like goblins or orcs? Are those existing on the good side of the the world, or are those only on the bad side of Egress? So they do exist um, on the good side. Um, I don't think goblins did initially. That was something that uh, they kind of came in, into existence because of this breaking of the world. Um, but orcs actually existed, and and we we wanted to take a different take on orcs that they were actually good by nature. Um, they had a lot a lot of the same like personality qualities and things like that. But in egress, their job was actually to be the caretakers of this central um, abyss where the um, reservoir of souls resided in between the ten year cycle. Okay, so kind of more like how Dragonborn are like upholders of justice. That's kind of a bit more how orcs are culturally with the Negros. Not yeah. in the modern day. <laughs> yeah, not, not in the modern day. <laughs> um, okay. But in the Timeless Era, they protected the Well of Souls and had you know a higher calling that way. Um, with the Well of Souls being destroyed for like 3,000 years plus at this point, um, and a lot of misunderstandings in the early days, the orcs are a little closer to what you'd expect from classical fantasy orcs, but there are still vestiges of that old role they played in their culture. Gotcha. I think the way to best describe orcs now would be what if, uh, you know, two, three thousand years has passed. The cultural significance of your race is largely lost and everybody's hated you for 3000 years what would what would happen to your society as far as goblins they kind of live in smaller tribes and are super scattered so there's not enough unified goblins to be a threat to the army of humans for example okay so that explains the human dominance yeah i'm sure there are other short-lived races but i think orcs and goblins are the ones that i know that are most numerous in most campaign worlds okay so you guys are talking about dragons and from that big mega dragon you were talking about in the, the world's history, it sounds like they experienced the longing, so they must also experience that like demon influence as well. I'm yes. Assuming. Yep. Uh, they brought way too much gold into one place to strengthen that dragon, and it was a bad time. Uh, a note about gold that's actually really important. It's basically solid magic in our setting. And that's why dragons spawn out of it. They're beings made of magic, essentially. And gold is what you'll use if you want to become stronger or better at things beyond normal levels. So your player characters in our game, they don't get XP from killing monsters. They get XP by turning gold into the nearest dragon who can convert that into a level up, essentially. Um, so gold is the most important resource in the world, and every city is trying to hoard it to have a bigger dragon than everyone else, but also to fuel up their military and adventuring class of people so they have experts to do whatever they need to. Okay. So I go get 
500 gold pieces, and then I go hand it over to my city's dragon, and then I get to level up. Essentially, yes. Okay, with different numbers on that. Yeah, yep. And And that's how magic items are built, too, is out of gold, and there's a whole economy that's all restricted because you're kind of using C4 as currency. (laughs) Uh, Right. Uh, So is it just gold and not, like, silver or gems? Like, gold is the only thing that's magical? Usually, yeah. Like, silver is used for the regular economy. Gold is used for the magical economy. Okay. Would uh, It feels like within that system you might start having uh, a fiat currency of some kind, or at least paper notes. Yeah, that's just effectively like copper and silver is handling that. And then gold, we just took off the table and we bumped the other currency up. So if you're looking at regular D&D rules... The gold piece in that is equivalent to a silver piece here, and then we just scrap the lowest currency and round it up. Okay, gotcha. Or you could use calorie beads or something. Yeah. I mean, there are actually a few places in the world that use other currencies that are not metal-based, but for the most part, you just use silver and copper. Okay, yeah. Sounds sounds fairly typical. Uh, I I had a question earlier that I forgot to ask. Um, So... It, egress is basically like a a downward pointed cone for the like the physical shape of the world. Yeah. Uh, is the abyss shaped the same way? Pretty not the abyss. The 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 bad side is that shaped pretty much the same way. Yes. It's like okay. Think of a coin that's identical on both sides, other than the texture is slightly different and the coloring is different. Um, but we're talking a whole plane of existence, so. Yeah. All right. When I was imagining it, I mean, it is more flat than this shape, but I was imagining it like an hourglass with sand pouring into the center. Yeah, that'd probably be a better. Sides. That'd probably yeah, be a better. That's uh, a better analogy. Um, yeah. It would probably be what we'd said if we based our world off of if we didn't like the spider trap idea so much. Because well, yeah, yeah the, this is a better description in, in every way. The the spider was the demons, and things just kind of evolved. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, so do the demons take physical form, or are they just like a like a possession and mental influence on people? This bleeds to your question earlier about undead. Um, so there's a few ways demons can manifest. Uh, the first is if a body was susceptible to some demonic corruption prior to its death and then isn't disposed of properly the demon can sometimes manifest inside the corpse and be an undead and then if the undead exists for long enough or if a living creature is fully possessed by a demon and then continues to live long enough their body will mutate into the body of a demon Okay, uh, I guess my next question on that would be, what about the more, like, uh, like a vampire, you know, or that undead that, like, is known for living for a super long time, or, or liches, or mummies, or stuff like that? All in the same category. Um, they Not all the undead work the same way as they would in classic fantasy, where, you know, the vampire can spread its affliction the normal way. Um, we haven't messed too much with undead so far. But the undead as a class are all related to the demons in one way or another. And because demons are chaos, they 
behave very differently at times and can change in all sorts of very bizarre ways and act very differently and not even realize they are a demon. Okay. And I guess <clears throat> this might help make a little bit more sense of things. The, the demons are definitely playing the long game here. And so the era that we're in right now where the players are at, things are really just starting to happen with the demons having enough influence over the world, you know, having their first few people that they have, uh, you know, gotten in the minds of and started doing things like trapping people in a dungeon until they're well past their, you know, past the longing and a demon can come take them over. Mm -hmm. And so the players are experienced that and they, they actually had a run in uh, not too long ago. And, you know, from, from the, the world lens, like this thing shouldn't exist. Un undead should not exist in this world. Um, and so they're kind of the, the first ones to run into that and then get to start telling more powerful people like, Hey, there's this stuff ex that exists that should not exist in nature. Like, what do we do? Okay. The new ish uh, phenomenon. Yeah. I had another question about the undead. Uh, so it sounds like they all eventually turn into physical demons. And I mentioned like more powerful undead, like vampires and liches. Would those turn into more powerful demons? So they can still manifest as a vampire or a lich and stay that way. It's just their nature is that of a demon, right? It's a kind of a semantics thing. They don't turn into the stat blocks of demons from, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. They can, but they don't have to. All right. You can just think of undead and demons basically being in the same category. Okay. All right, you mentioned the the party finding out about the undead and all of that. Um, you want to talk about the actual workings of your campaign and then the, the plot going on there? Yeah, sure. So our campaign is set in the little region um, known as the Eladrin Mountain Range, uh, named for the Eladrin Elves, which you'll probably recognize, yep. um, who live there. It's currently a ruin the eladrin people who lived here fell from their more civilized widespread cities towns nation states um into a more tribal think almost a bit of like avatar not the last airbender other avatar type of native american and other indigenous people inspired culture of elves mm -hmm. And the ruined cities are treasure troves that attracted the adventuring type, which we call Delvers, because they dive into the ruins of the old world to reclaim gold so that they can give it to the dragon and level up. And a frontier town has budded there called New Hearth, um, and that is where we started in this kind of adventuring town. Okay, so they they went deep in and then found an undead, and now they're trying uh -huh. to figure out what's going on and get some help and how to confront that problem. Yes. So it's not that they delved like super deep into the earth. They actually stumbled upon an old elven home where an elven family had sealed themselves away at the end of the war that shattered this culture and had used a magic item to sustain themselves for food, but they ended up getting trapped and barricaded in a cellar and could never get out. And so they had enough food that the elf father experienced the longing became corrupted by a demon murdered his family and then 
eventually died in there and became an undead who was just trapped in this room that they opened while exploring. Oh, well, that sounds terrifying. Yes, it was. <laughs> I love the reaction when you describe the bone angel. Yes. A bone angel? Bone angel was a lot of fun. Yeah, think like a a mummy without the wrapping, but with wing-like protrusions out its back like an angel, but they're all skeletal, and they act kind of like hands mixed with spider legs. And it crawls around on the ceiling with them, and it uses them to spike at you, and all sorts of fun stuff. Oh, great. <laughs> Person has a lot of fun creating uh, unique monsters that are uh, as fun as they are terrifying. I, I did have a question about, like, so you've described how the, the co-DMing works for the world creation, how it actually works within the adventure creation and DMing during play. Yeah, yes. so that's, uh, it's it's a lot simpler than I, I think some people think it might be. Um, preparation, we do split apart and do that stuff uh, mostly separately. I, I'll admit Carson takes on the, the most of that work with creating maps, uh, creating monsters. He's got a bunch of really cool tools for doing stuff like that, uh, that he's far better at than I am. Uh, I do some NPC creation, uh, take care control of the music just because that's a strength of mine and then once we actually play um carson takes over the traditional narration uh kind of gu guiding the party through stuff i take on more of the npcs than he does control the music help the players and then uh during combat uh i'm actually running all of the monsters on the map and you know agreed with the the party beforehand that hey you know all these fights fights are going to be winnable but the second dm is going to be trying to achieve whatever goal these these monsters would have if it's to murder all of you guys i'm going to be trying to murder all of you mm -hmm. if it's run away with stuff i'm going to do that and so it's it's added a little bit more dynamic to the game whereas you know when i was a dm on my own sometimes felt bad uh, going at the party too hard but i feel no guilt now and it's great okay so it's, it's kind of set up more like a a small scale war game almost kind of it's about offloading responsibilities so a regular dm has so much to manage especially since we're using a virtual environment you have to kind of manage the virtual tools and so by designating i'm doing the narration stuff during a combat so so-and-so wants to go attack the goblin. I can narrate what happens. I can ask for the rolls. I can say, you take however much damage. And then Hayden's handling the strategy of it because trying to manage the strategy against the full party while running the game and kind of, you know, your brain on their turn is focused on helping them get their turn completed and not on strategizing for the monster's turn. And by offloading, you get more coherence and less... But like weird behavior from your NPCs and monsters. Okay, gotcha. So it sounds like during the actual like mechanical part of DMing, you guys are mostly splitting up the responsibilities and yeah. handling those separately. Yes, sir. And then that econ economics one hundred and one thing, where you know the division of labor to specialized stuff going on a little bit there too. It sounds like. Yeah. Like, we collaborate for plots, like, who's going to do what and why and what's the adventure and all that kind of stuff we collaborate on. When it comes to 
all right, we need to build a map of this room or we need X number of monsters and their types. That usually drops to me. Hayden handles uh, music and also handles a lot of the logistics of like making sure character sheets are leveled up and that kind of thing. Also keeping the endless list of potential NPC names that we can pull uh-uh. out of our hat whenever we need them. <laughs> yes, that is a big thing. Yep. Um, okay, so when I first heard about the co-DMing thing, I was curious if you guys had a, a DM PC or two that represented yourselves when you weren't the active DM or something like that. It sounds like that's not your style. It is not. Because then uh, they, they'll know too much. <laughs> and yep. if they don't help the party using that knowledge, it feels like you're screwing over the party because you let them walk into a death trap. Um, but if you do intervene, then you're the one who is stealing the spotlight all the time and know all the things and is not fair. So there's not a really good way to balance that. We didn't think. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had that problem when I've I've been like, oh, well, it makes sense for this guy to tag along with the party, but to make it fun for you, I'm not going to give any advice during party discussions about what we're going to do next. Yeah, we'll have NPCs that are with the party sometimes, but we don't have anyone who stays permanently on the party or even long-term. We try to keep that short. Gotcha. I think the the funner uh, funner uh, characters uh, to play are the, the NPCs that are that are fun to um, role-play. They often meet in town, and those have been fun to kind of have re, uh, reoccurring appearances of, of them. Reoccurring appearances, you know, I could just say reappearances. It, that would be the, the English word for that. Reoccurring characters is the there you go. That's TV it. show terminology that I think you were going <laughs> for there. We'll just mash them both together. Yeah. Um, do you guys ever... It sounds like you don't really keep secrets from each other during this process, but it sounds like it also might be something that you do occasionally do just to kind of poke fun at the other DM. Is that something that ever happens? Not much of that. We're we're pretty open on our preparation side of thing. And as far as keeping secrets for fun, it's less about keeping secrets and more about throwing a curveball out of nowhere in the middle of the session and making them deal with it. <laughs> um, yeah, we've had a few of those. But yeah, we're, we don't really... It's a collective project, and so we sometimes work on things individually, but then we bring it back in collaboratively um, to keep us on the same page. Okay. Um, Hayden mentioned that you had some tools for maps and monster creation. Do you want to talk about those in case someone else might be interested in those kind of things? Um, sure. So the software I use for maps, um, large scale maps, I use Wonderdraft. Um, probably have heard it brought up before if you've asked this question before. Yep. That's what I use to make the continent level maps. Um, really great tool for map making. It's a one-time purchase, really good. Uh, for smaller maps, I use the dungeon drafts made by the same people, just for dungeons. I build basically every map we use. We don't really outsource it from internet sources at all. It's all custom. Mm-hmm. And then as far as our keeping track of the world, we use some Google Drive. We use a Trello board like once every two years. And then we use a program called Legend Keeper, which is a web-hosted um, world-building tool. 
where you can keep all your information. I think I saw, well, maybe it was one of you that, or Hayden that mentioned it in the Discord for that. Yeah, it's a really fantastic tool, especially for map-based stuff, which kind of is the essence of a D&D world. Uh, the last two tools to mention would be, um, if I can say the name right, Giphy Glyph has this Monster Maker web app, um, which makes... It's how I make the monsters. I use the rules that he put together to make monsters that are more balanced, sort of following the archetypes you'll see in 4th edition, um, to make sure the monsters are all varied and combat encounters are a little more balanced than the default CR system, and to also keep monsters unique and different, so anyone who's played D&D before knows what to expect from a goblin. They don't know what to expect from these goblins because they're built with fundamentally different math and mechanics. Okay, gotcha. And we use Foundry for our virtual tabletop. Right. So that's a good one. So that's all the tools I reuse for the most part. So I will I will throw out there to any other uh, DMs that are struggling with the tech side of things. Just find you an IT uh, codem <laughs> to do stuff with you, and they'll just take care of everything else. It may smooth the process, admittedly. Okay. Yeah, the Wonder Draft thing was something I talked about in the episode before this. Um, yeah. So that's that's good to hear. That's a popular program. Um, the the Giphy Glyph thing that you mentioned. How do you spell that? It's G I F F Y G L Y P H. Okay. He's got a website with a bunch of different tools on it. I like his content, but all I use personally is the Monster Maker. He has like a separate fifth edition alternative rule set basically okay cool cool um and foundry has like a built-in music kind of thing right is that how you work that in um yeah so i gotta think the the server that foundry is hosted on um carson's also set up another um file system on that yeah carson probably knows the technical technical term for that um where i'm able to store music on there and then you just import it into foundry and then it has a playlist on the side and then i can just choose whatever's appropriate for the moment okay cool yeah do you guys have anything else to add about like the the physical well not maybe physical isn't quite the right word for a virtual campaign but that aspect of dming um Navigating the tools can sometimes be inconvenient, but there's also pluses to it. Um, far as it's a unified platform where all of the things you need are contained in a single environment, so you're not trying to flip through books or papers and other miscellaneous stuff that you'd see at a physical table. It's just all very orderly. But at the same time, in order for the features to work fully, you have to import the map and then trace all the walls with the wall tool and then add the lighting and then add the monsters and in this case create the tokens and the stat block within the system so it does add a ton of overhead but it does have some nice advantages like animated lighting and i don't play much with the animated maps but you could even do animated maps and other stuff like that that's really cool it's more of a necessity because uh, we live in different parts of the country and so we kind of have to <laughs> Yeah. I have really liked the animated maps, but uh, I use Roll20 and they mm -hmm. are tremendous CPU hogs. I just, it doesn't work. Yes. 
Yep. Yeah, I don't I don't think I have anything else on the kind of the, the physical parts of I don't know the DMing okay. side of things. Um I did want to talk about the the gold as XP kind of thing that you guys were doing with the dragons a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um so can, yeah. can you describe in a little more detail about how that system works? Yeah, so this was actually something that we had talked about for a while and and during this whole like world creation process and uh it was it was kind of fun cuz some of the changes that we wanted to make to fun, you know, how D- D&D fundamentally works uh we actually built into our world building. And so this was one of those examples um where we, you know, I I I'd known that way back in the day uh gold as XP was kind of a thing. Um, and so we wanted to find what's a modern take on that that would fit within fifth edition. And so we, I mean, we've done a decent amount of homebrew with rules to make it work. Um, but the, I don't remember the exact math. I think it was a half of whatever the experience is asked for in. It was uh, one tenth. Is it one tenth? Yeah. One tenth. Yep. Okay. Tenth foot of the experience that's asked for, that's how much gold you need. Um, and then you just take that to a dragon and they do their special dragon breath thing and then you get leveled up. So we decided to use gold as XP because we wanted to facilitate a dungeon diving type of game and we wanted them to be focused on get the stuff out of the dungeon. And a lot of times currency doesn't feel valuable in uh, 5th edition games especially, which is what we're using at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so by making it XP, gold is suddenly the most important thing. It's used for your magic, it's used for your level ups, it is the thing you are there for. And that's kind of what drove the decision to move toward this kind of weird homebrew, get gold for levels system. And even then it makes uh, experience, uh, you know, gold, whatever it is, feel more valuable because it's not just used for leveling up. You can also go buy magic items with it. Yeah, if you'd rather have your sword upgraded than yourself, you can budget that way and then level up maybe behind everyone else, but you have a magic item. Yeah, yeah. Depending on what level it is, you might rather have the magic item instead of a proficiency bonus three levels from now. And we like to throw just a little bit more at the party than they need for full level up, so that even if they save all their money for the level up, they'll have a little bit of extra that they can buy a magic item with and probably not delay their next level up. Yeah, of course. So when I've heard stories about using gold for level up, usually there's a issue with the system where there's an incentive for players to not split the gold evenly because they want to have more for themselves. Do you guys yeah. experience that issue? I could see that we would have that problem with a different group, but the the players that we're playing with, it's it's just not an issue with them. I, we and... kind of started out the game of everyone already knows each other. You've decided to work together, and you're on good terms, and basically have the discussion up front. We're not going to do this. Um, so it just doesn't happen. Okay. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to run a group of seven-year-olds in this world because they're just, they're just going to go rob and steal from everything, right? But if you've got, you know, mature adults who can get along and know this is going to cause fights and then not cause those fights, it'd be good. Yeah, social contract, right? Yep, exactly. Um, 
follow-up to that, another thing that I'd heard about using gold as XP is that it uh, leads to dungeon stripping, I guess is the word for it. <laughs> Where it's just like uh, one example that my players didn't do because I'm not using gold as an XP in my world was there was these really nice statues in a tomb and it would have been a real pain to try and get those statues out but they're very nice statues and they would have been very valuable if they had got them out but they chose not to so the way we solve that is there's two different economies uh the silver and copper economy is its own thing and sure you could you could strip the dungeon you're only ever going to get silver and copper for those things the only things that you're ever going to be able to get gold for is actual gold and i guess you could probably turn in some magic items um i don't think we've we've dug into that yet um but no yeah, one's done it yet but economies <laughs> has pretty much solved that okay so because it's only gold valuable things don't let you level up so they're not valuable in that same way yeah right. They're good for just regular monetary value. If you want to buy a building or something, then yeah, you want to, you might want to do that. But if you want to level up faster, you can't trade that for gold because people value gold more than they value that other stuff because it makes you stronger. <laughs> okay. The way this originally worked in first edition was it was whatever value of your hoard decided your XP total. Nah, they're fully separate. Okay. Um, and this is a, another question i had but i guess you've already answered it is that because you don't have a physical horde you're exchanging it to a dragon there's no way for you to lose levels if your gold is stolen because it's not there anymore in your possession yep once you've been imbued with the strength from this process it is now a part of you and so if that gold was taken by someone else no big deal you're fine it's only if it's intercepted before you can get it to a dragon who can bestow that strength upon you uh so i guess follow-up question there can i like steal the gold from the dragon and then give it back and get another level? I mean, think about um, the Hobbit. When they stir the tiniest little bit of the treasure hoard, Smog wakes up. The way you can think of gold in a dragon is if someone were to pluck a single gold coin out of the hoard and try to steal it, it would be like plucking a hair from your arm. You'd notice it right away. Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult to steal from a dragon, and doing so weakens the dragon, so they will violently stop anything attempting to do that. And the society around the dragon will defend the horde as well. So it's incredibly difficult to do so. Um, we haven't figured out the exact mechanics of how much power the gold loses when it goes into a dragon's possession. We haven't really looked into that too much. Okay. Um, so... Uh... Potentially possible, but no one does that because the dragon roasts them. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and and the city benefits from the dragon being strong, and so the city itself would would hate to see anybody come in and take any gold away because that's their that's their fire insurance if an invading army comes in. As we we've, we've got this massive dragon that we've been bringing gold to for the last twenty years. Um, okay. It's your nuclear deterrent, and yep. if you don't have one, the other dragon will come roast your city and take whatever the small dragon has. Right, and so the dragons can be used offensively. They don't just, like, stay by their gold pile. They're intelligent creatures who can do what they want. They just tend to work with the city because they 
If if the city was to be obliterated and scattered to the wind, or if the horde was to be completely obliterated and stolen away, the dragon ceases to be. Right. So they defend it because it's their lifeline, but they can still go off and do whatever they want to do. It's just strategy. Okay. If a city had a big enough gold pile, they could like split it in half and have two dragons. Um, it would probably kill the current dragon, and they'd have to have two new dragons be born out of the two separate piles. But in theory, yes. Okay. Might leave them vulnerable for a bit while that happens. Yeah, because the dragon needs to grow. They're going to be defenseless. Usually not done, but it could happen. Which is another important point in history and potentially in the future as well. Dragons do also experience the longing. And right. so uh, they keep their ages very well hidden so that nobody, no neighboring uh, armies or other dragons could try and guess when it is that they're going to have to make their trip to the abyss. And now the city's yeah. horde is vulnerable. Yeah. Okay, so when a dragon experiences the longing, it would theoretically go into the abyss, and then mm -hmm. that city would be weak for some amount of time until a new dragon popped to defend that horde? Exactly. Yep. That's it. Okay. And that's that's actually the crux of the dwarven-elven conflict we mentioned briefly before. Oh, yeah? The dwarves convinced a subspecies of the elves to betray their kin and while the dwarves lured the dragon away with their own dragon they stole from the horde of their own people the the elves did and ran away with it killing the elven dragon and allowing the dwarves to sack the elven civilization and this um sub race the sea elves then became buddies with the dwarves and the rest of the elves really don't like dwarves but they hate the sea elves for this ancestral yeah. feud okay yeah i can i can see that so there's some cool ways this influenced global politics um i guess i had a follow-up to that like dragon experiences the longing and goes and throws itself in the abyss that isn't really connected to a city like falling or from grace or experiencing some sort of cultural shift when the new dragon shows up because they have like a new soul for that dragon so they have a new soul for the city does that kind of thing happen or is that not really connected so it's a little bit of the opposite so the the dragon gains its personality based off of the city right and so uh a fun bit of lore that's <clears throat> one of our fun stories with this so the southeast there's actually another uh, smaller society of dwarves down there that think of like the the worst uh you know game of thrones maneuvering between the houses um or game of houses or what is it yeah i think game of houses in the wheel of time series um and just like i think the worst version of that of just conniving and at each other's throats and that's the society of that city and so the dragon as well is suspicious of everybody. And so one of the things that we've got set up eventually for the players there is that the dragon is so paranoid that it's actually tunneled underneath the city, has its horde there, but because it's so paranoid of coming out and getting killed or having its horde stolen, it stayed down there, has outgrown the tunnels that it's dug, is well past experiencing the longing and is slowly becoming demonic and we're wanting to send the party down there and they essentially run into this dragon that's 
more worm, not worm, you know, worm. <clears throat> um, and is just crazed out of its mind, you know, wings have nearly been ripped off of its back as it just scrapes through these tunnels. Um, but whenever that dragon does die and another one comes back, it'll have a similar personality unless the society itself changes. Okay. This also causes fun things like goblins who manage to collect enough treasure spawn a dragon that is very goblin-like and then proceeds to destroy the colony. <laughs> um, and in turn destroys itself. All sorts of funny shenanigans with dragons in this setting. Okay. Um, maybe a mechanical suggestion that you guys don't need, but for the dragon that has its wings almost ripped off, you might want to consider using a Lenorm to represent it. I had never heard of this monster. <laughs> I'm not sure if they moved them into 5th edition, but a Lenorm was like a... a four-legged dragon with no wings or two legs in some cases that was more like an animal level intelligence yeah i mean that's pretty close to what it would be <laughs> so yeah that sounds like a good idea i'll take a look at that and see if there's anything we can pull from it yeah there might be a, if it hasn't officially moved into fifth edition there's probably some uh fan-made version fan-made version or you could look at the if you can find the third edition version, you might be able to convert that. Although uh, I'm not really sure how conversion works for attack and AC with. You see, I destroy myself and make him from scratch every time with the different math. So yeah, either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess there is the the math in the DMG for doing that, so you can handle it that way. But yeah, just a suggestion that there already sort of there already is kind of a package that works for that. If there is a combat that they end up having with that dragon. Well, certainly look at it. Okay, so we've talked a lot about like the broader strokes of the world, a little bit about your campaign. Um, did you want to talk about more about your campaign, or also the different cultures of your world? Because you mentioned a few, but we still kind of just did much yeah. wider scope. Um, I think the cultures is one of the other things that we've taken a lot of pride in. We'll, we'll go over them briefly just cause I, I don't want to take, I don't know. We, we could talk for like five hours on this. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, Carson, I'll start with the, uh, I'll start with the humans and then let's just go clockwise, um, around <laughs> our, our little world there. So the humans, um, have a theocracy that is set up with a God emperor, and lots of kings and queens beneath him. Um, they do a lot of uh, maneuvering and stuff politically as well. Uh, the the main city where the god emperor lives, essentially when everybody's there, they're on equal footing, no matter how large their kingdom is or is not. And when the god emperor dies, um, a new one is, is brought forward um, of the god emperor's choice. And so the, you can imagine somebody that's very weak from an army standpoint or economy, you know, wealth could become the next God emperor by, by getting into their good graces. Um, so that's the, the main class that we call the exalted. The, there's a typical middle class of, you know, traders and merchants and things like that. Um, but long before the time that we're playing in, there was a war between two human factions uh, before the, you know, they were known as the exalted. 
um, and the exalted one and subjugated these people. And part of their religion is actually based around uh, that the exalted were chosen by God, by the God emperor um, to be the, the ruling class here. And this other human um, faction are now called the Riven. They've been uh, Riven from, from God himself. Um, and so they're essentially slaves in this world. Um, more, uh, how do I explain it? They, they have a, a price placed on their head the day that they're born. And if they can work long enough, they can eventually buy their freedom. Uh, but they often die or experiencing, experience the longing before that. So um, most of them spend their days in, in slavery. Um, occasionally a family will pool their money together to send one person free, but largely the, the Riven will stay Riven their entire lives, doing menial labor and mining and things like that. Uh, is the price in gold or silver? So uh, neither. <laughs> uh, this is one of those fake currencies we talked about. Uh, I think oh, we called okay. them marks, but they're basically mm -hmm. just a wooden ship that denotes currency for the Riven's only uh controlled by the exalted and the saying goes that one rivet is worth one gold piece as a way to be demeaning essentially um but yeah they don't actually have real currency they only work off of this false currency imposed by the exalted yeah okay. you wouldn't wouldn't dare give your uh, slaves any any more power than you have to uh, a note on the god emperor and the kings and whatnot you can think of the kings and queens of these territories as being jacked up on gold to like the level of a high-level player character, you know, level 16 plus. The god emperor himself is jacked up, so he's like a level 20 boss monster. Because mm -hmm. um, they, they've got a dragon, and rather than dispersing the benefits of the dragon's gold across the populace, they deprive the slave class of all gold and focus all of it on their exalted class. So they're very, very few, but very, very strong. Okay, so that God Emperor might have some of those epic boons from the DMG that lets you get even higher up. Yeah, like the God Emperor and the Dragon are sitting in roughly equal footing as far as raw power. Ooh, cool. Uh, that's one of, I think, our favorite locations mm -hmm. is that whole Dragon Claw range where that all is kept. Yep. Okay, cool. Um... So just north of the Dragonclaw range where the humans are is the Blossoming Expanse. This is a primarily halfling society, so lots and lots of hills over many miles. What's very interesting about the halflings here is they have incredibly strong oral tradition, such that they are the most knowledgeable about history, even things thousands of years ago, because they will tell tales and stories that outsiders, they tell the fun stories that have moral implications to them, you know, classic tavern tales. Among their own people, though, they recite ancient histories of their people and the people beyond, and they have incredible memories. We've actually changed the halfling race to enable them to get the keen mind feet basically for free. Um, and okay. they just keep this long-standing oral history and actually set up kind of little subcultures all over the world where halflings are in the tavern kind of just listening to things, and then they repeat back everything they heard and have this crazy, expansive information network in the modern day um, that is largely on the down low. And so they're a fun group. Okay. Um, so I was assuming that oral tradition would not survive the changes that the longing brought about because the 
old people that would be the largest reservoir of stories and that kind of history would be dead. There the would have been some that. lost for sure, uh, but the timeless era, they didn't really keep track of time because it was just eons of very static status quo because Egress is keeping it in status quo mode. Oh, I see. Um, and the halflings just have ridiculous brains, right? They could skim the, the textbook and then just quote it verbatim during the test type of brains. So it survives much better than it would for any other race. I think we also had the idea that they were the lore keepers even during the, the timeless era. They would have been in charge of record keeping. And so uh, even during the unraveling, they still would have grown up learning lots of tales okay. from, a, from a very young age. Gris created the different races to do specific things for him in his ecosystem. Mm -hmm. All right. I feel like I want to give you another recommendation here, if that's all right. Sure. Um, in fourth edition, there was a exotic race called divas, um, mm -hmm. which I think still exists somewhat in fifth edition, but not in the same way. Um, where they were uh, like angels that were continuously reincarnated, so you you would occasionally get flashes from your previous life, um, and it was called like um, memories of the ancestor or something like that, mm -hmm. and it would give you like advantage on one attack per day was the effect of that but um there was a bunch of feats you could take because you got way more feats in fourth edition to expand on that power um and that might be a way to you could look into that for additional things that could make those halflings be feel more unique and interesting with that type of strong super strong oral history and super strong memory um and that's how they used it in fourth edition there might be something cool you could bring in that way absolutely something to consider so that's the main gist of the halflings yep so going a little bit further north from there uh we mentioned the eladrin i'll i'll talk about them a little bit and carson i'm gonna i'm gonna take the iron wastes here as yeah well. that's that's all connected um because that, that's all all together so before the the modern era um, there was another human civilization that lived north, uh, would be the northernmost civilization here. Um, and they were very, very techno technologically advanced. Um, back in the day, it was actually called Steel Spire, and they had constructs and automatons and all sorts of cool uh, magitech there. Um, and they were at war with the Eladrin and winning. Uh, quite uh quite quite well uh due to their technology however the eladrin uh specifically the Aladis tribe um found a way to go in and tamper with the uh magic that bound um the power of the constructs inside and essentially turned these constructs uh violent towards any living creature and so the humans quickly got wiped out to live there um the execute Aladrin. order 66 exactly <laughs> the the Aladrin were able to to take care of the army with the three tribes combined um and so what was steel spire is now known as the iron wastes and the uh, you know constructs and everything are so powerful there it is an absolute no-go zone unless you're a, you know in D, &D terms of a, a really high level party would be able to survive there um, okay, so there's just still a bunch of rampaging constructs that are in that space? Yep. Yeah, so yeah, no, nobody lives there now. 
Um, but the the modern day Eladrin, um, ever since the war ended, they they kind of started infighting, not actual like wars or anything, more territorial um, disputes. And so the the three tribes there now are the Aladis, the Valilia, and then the Dalarel. And they all have different personalities. Um, some are more pacifist, some are more like mediators, and then another one's more kind of aggressors. But what unites them still is that they all share a dragon and have agreements to bring all of their gold, um, or what they say is all of their gold, enough of it anyway, uh, to that dragon to strengthen it so that united they're still a, a viable force. Um, the dragon has three heads, which is exciting. <laughs> yep, that was the other thing. <laughs> so, yep, that's the that's the Eladrin. I don't know if there's much else to say that for them. I think we we base them loosely off of some of the uh, Fey, you know, summer winter. Uh, yeah, they, there are arch Fey that we haven't even touched on Fey. Fey are the only exception to the longing of the abyss. They do not get called to it. So these are some of the only ancient beings that exist. Ooh. Um. That's that's a whole side tangent, but yep. their tribes traditionally followed the arch phase of the seasons. Um, anyway, we could go in more detail, but we've got other things, and I don't know if we want to <laughs> dive all the way in there. I'm kind of interested, like the, the only immortal species that's left. That sounds cool. I'd like to hear more. So, Fey are weird. Um, basically... The Fey don't have a, a Fey dimension they exist in, right? Um, there's no Fey wilds. But areas that have extremely high magic in the air, we call it mana, classic term, can either birth new creatures purely out of mana, or they can take existing creatures and mutate them into other permutations of the creatures that can be anything. So Fey are very chaotic because these mutations are random, essentially. Um... Some of them live kind of like a regular animal might, except for maybe they can shoot lightning out of their face or similar. Um, others are very otherworldly, and since they don't experience the longing, they just end up living for a, a tremendously long amount of time. And sometimes uh, you need some comedic relief uh, in the middle of your game, and so you throw some rainbow-colored uh, bunny rabbits at your party that leave uh, colorful chalk marks on them and call them the care hairs. Um, excellent. And they were fey as well. Yep. But yeah, the, the fairs are, are the most diverse group. If you ever want to have a monster or creature that doesn't fit into any other category you make it a fey and it's born out of magic and they don't have a soul necessarily so they're not susceptible to demonic corruption because of that okay so uh, i if they don't have a soul does that mean they're essentially just a very complicated program and how they act not necessarily they're they can be intelligent, they just don't have the same kind of existence as a regular person would. Okay. Um, they have a singular instance where a, a bunch of magic clumped together and made something based off of the impressions of egress or the impressions of nearby creatures and created something unique, and once that unique thing is destroyed, it will not exist again. 
Okay. So they're not born out of gold the same way dragons are, or the, no. the magic right. from gold summons them. It's more about the magic in the air, or ley lines, or It's whatever. ley lines. We haven't talked about them, but there's ley lines that are a little more in-depth than I think D&D normally is. But sometimes those ley lines leak, and from the leaks sprout things like fey and also elementals. Okay. So the ley lines were created by egress, right? Or did they come about in a different way? I think uh, yes and no. Yeah. Uh, they're created by egress, but egress not only created the world, they also are the world. So this is sort of like the blood, if you will, or the power source of this deity. It is what gives life to this area. It's why the seasons in an area stay in that area and don't drift. In some areas, rain and other areas are dry. All that's powered by the mana ley lines, which are essentially Egress's existence and will making the world how it is. Okay. Um, I had a question that I forgot to ask a while back. Um, with only one uh, god in your world, how do clerics work with you know wanting to choose a different domain or something like that? So it's based more on cultural devotion, and Egress kind of just responds. The, the magic in the ley lines can respond to strong emotional ties. Uh, I got all fancy and decided to develop the magic system and make it stupid, uh, but it's called emotional resonance. And so if you believe strongly enough in an ideal, that is sufficient. There doesn't need to be a god granting it to you. It is your conviction, and the magic just responds to that. Okay. So it can be a false god that you're praying to, or it could just be general spirituality. Doesn't really matter. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like what the I forget which book, whether it was the player's handbook or the DMG for how to handle clerics in that situation, but that sounds like that. Yep. Okay, we're going over the Eladrin. Is there a different section you guys wanted to talk about? Uh, do you want to keep going with the dwarves, Carson? Uh, yeah, we'll talk about dwarves real quick. We've talked about them briefly before. The dwarves basically won. Uh, they're the most powerful military empire and economic empire currently in the world. Cool. Um, biggest dragon, most people. And they're basically the only people who are mining gold out of the earth in huge amounts versus delving it from ruins. But they control um, the bottom peaks and have basically a single mountain city that sprawls for dozens of miles into various like smaller subsections and they're the, the technological powerhouse um, they have firearms that they've begun to develop and keep those secret law wise they're considered part of the dragon horde so if you have one and you're not supposed to you'll be executed type of thing um, but they're kind of They've grown fat <laughs> in a metaphorical sense and no longer exert that kind of power the way they used to. They're content and kind of just living in mostly isolation from the rest of the world in their super large, very prosperous society. Uh, something just came up to me when you while you were talking about that. Um, with gold being so important in this world's uh, everything... Mm -hmm. um, would a search for a philosopher's stone be a much bigger deal? I mean, if you could get one, yeah. I don't think we've really considered philosopher's stones, but 
we have it set in that lead is the anti-gold, so if you wanted to make a shield that is resistant to magic, you would build it with lead. Um, and so if you could take that and make it back into gold, that would be extraordinarily valuable. We just haven't really explored that. Okay. Cool. So the we kind of already talked about the sea elves. I won't really touch on them anymore. They're the furthest to the northeast. They inhabit an area that we call the Fractured Isles. Um, theme wise, I would I would compare them to like pirates. I mean, you could think Fractured Isles as a mix of a really cool mob and like Tortuga from Pirates of the Caribbean on the best of days. Um, okay. So that's kind of their thing, and they they do have a a navy, I guess, uh, or ships at least, and they do some shipping, some smuggling around the outer coast. They just you know don't travel too far. Um, from the any of the coast of egress but we kind of mentioned the other history behind them uh i'll i'll cover the dragonborn as well so they're on the east side of the continent and they might actually have one of the bigger areas um for anybody but after the the fall of the dragon king when he essentially you know exploded from getting too big and, and going crazy and just burning himself out right. um it scarred the land here and the the earth itself got burnt and scarred and um there's a lot of black sand and stuff and so the dragonborn uh carson you'll have to remind me on this one the the dragonborn didn't exist until after the fall of the dragon king correct right so dragonborn are weird um they were not originally a creation of egress dragonborn happen when there is a dead dragon they just spawn inside of it essentially so the the dragon will wilt away much faster than normal creatures will um so if you want dragon scales or whatever you got to be quick about it but inside the dragon's corpse not necessarily in like a reproductive area it could be in the rib cage in the skull doesn't really matter you'll find dragonborn eggs which will hatch into dragonborn and so they their society is now based off of gathering enough gold to essentially rebirth the dragon king um their their plan isn't to like set it loose to blow up the entire world or anything like that they just they want to have the most powerful dragon again and so uh they they have a, a central kind of nesting area in the east here and the the black sand there you know absorbing heat from the sun is excellent for uh nesting these eggs but they also have a series of um, dragonborn camps spread throughout the world where they will go and, and delve and get gold and then transport it back to the east um, to add it to that horde there while they strengthen their dragon. Um, some dragonborn kind of leave that society and they will go and uh, serve other dragons. Um but that's kind of the the two places that they exist is either in the east um bringing gold in or serving other dragons for other civilizations throughout the world okay yeah they're the weird one yep <laughs> um that leads into a different question i had because you have the dragon board that don't have a dragon now or anymore however you want to qualify that uh -huh. um what about for usually weaker races that don't have as much organization like we mentioned the orcs and the goblins there's also like ogres trolls giants like that kind of thing so a lot of those just don't have a 
society of sufficient size or wealth to have a dragon, and so they really just don't make much of an impact on the global scale, because a giant who was born with the strength of a giant is strong, but he cannot face down someone who's been taking in power from gold for the last 20 years. So they, they simply don't have a major presence. They're almost more like somewhere between tribes and beasts as far as politics are concerned for most races. Um, I'm just thinking that from a mechanical perspective, like one of the ways to make a monster more interesting is to give it some levels in a class so you can have like a stone giant that knows how to cast, you know, fireball or something. Yep. Um, it sounds like your world doesn't really support that as a option for the stone giant because it would have no way to gain five levels in wizard without having access to a dragon. So the way the leveling works is you can level up by learning and working for it, but it's much more difficult and tedious. And if you were to do it in that way, like level six is someone who's very talented and has worked for a very long time. That's about where you can get without using gold. So you can learn how to cast spells without going to a dragon first, but you're not going to become the best in the world without something like a dragon to empower you. Okay. It's like Olympic athletes can exist, but superheroes need the dragon. Okay, so the stone giant could get to that level, or he could somehow pay a dragon and get his magic steroids and then cast a fireball. Yep, as long as the dragon is willing, they could imbue strength to him, and they could give however much they want to whoever, so even if you don't pay him in gold, if they decide, I'm giving you strength, they could do it. And it okay. might also be helpful to point out that there there are some dragons that don't necessarily belong to a civilization i mean enough enough kobolds together could spawn a you know wormling or you know something along those lines a, a weaker version of it that's still somewhat capable of, of leveling up uh creatures around it and no dragon's gonna say no to gold no matter who or what it comes from yeah it's just something they wouldn't uh, like a stone giant comes up to a town and usually the town is going to say, ah, giant, instead of, yep. oh, yes, give us your gold and we'll give you more power. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I guess here's another thing. Uh, it would actually fit in really well with the Dragonborn with their little caravans of, of Delvers. Um, they would have um, some sort of a small dragon with them. Yeah, they actually carry a small horde on them, so they have people level up the caravan when it's on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And I could definitely see, like, they're not just purely Dragonborn, they're run by the Dragonborn, but all sorts of other entrepreneurs and uh, opportunists will join up with Dragonborn caravans and basically work under contract with them. Yeah, this would be um, an and, excellent yeah. place to see a, a giant employed and working with them. Um, so we, we could have a lot of fun with the, with the Dragonborn. Uh, caravans. We we just haven't got a chance to explore that quite yet. We kind of overlooked giants and whatnot a little bit, yeah. so that's a good good point out. We'll probably do a little more with them in the future. Mm -hmm. um, we already talked about the dwarves to the south of the Dragonborn Expanse. The last people to really talk about are, I guess, the elves and the gnomes. Uh, Yep. The elven society is currently fractured between what you could call the high elves, that's the subrace you use for their people, 
they're the elves who have been trying to reclaim the former glory of their ancestors who lived for a thousand years and have not let go of that. And so they live in the ancient ruins of forever past in the timeless area, trying to maintain them and restore them and recover, but they are barely able to maintain them and it's still degrading over time. Uh, they have a, a legend about an uh, elven hero who will rise up from among their people to restore the elven people to their former glory, but they're kind of just deteriorating and not moving on and adapting to the new world. They're maybe the most pitiful government just because they aren't with the system yet. Um, we, we thought of the idea of this being a, a truly tragic race surrounded by works that they'll never be able to recreate um, constantly having reminders of how great they once were. Um, and there's just not enough time in their lives to gain that level of expertise that will ever let them do those things again. And so it's kind of, kind of tragic just the fact that they still exist in, in those areas. Almost all the elves died when the, the cycle collapsed because most of them were over 100 years old. And 50, 100 years later, every single one has gone to the abyss and thrown themselves in. And all you have are basically children, from an elven perspective, trying to recover. There's a cataclysm beyond it, anything the other races had to face. Yeah, I was curious how... Because different campaigns have it differently for how elves mature, I think the, the standard is that they're like physically mature at 20, but just because of how long they live, elves aren't considered to be emotionally mature until they're 100. Yep, essentially that. We took a lot of the like generic tropes for the fantasy races, and then either gave them a little bit of a tweak like we did with the halflings, or we just decided what would happen if we'd shatter their culture into a billion pieces. <laughs> um, do you uh, want to talk about the Feybound? Sure. Okay. So I know you get to, you get the gnomes, which are my favorite, but that's okay. No, you get you get the half elves. I get the gnomes, yes. Oh. Sorry. Um so the the uh Feybound are one of the other elvish races and I think probably my probably my favorite out of them um they commonly have familiars in the form of animals that are close to their clans so whereas the eladrin live in tribes um the feybound have their own clans uh and they kind of model them after creatures that are in their environments so this is a very lush uh lots of rivers lots of lakes in this area where they are and so kind of like the eladrin they do have a common um a common dragon that helps govern and mediate between these different clans. And they're, they have some different alliances, uh, trade agreements between them. Um, but again, largely uh, territorial with the boundaries that they have. Okay. Um, people are free to travel through their area, but they've got to follow the rules and you've likely got a Feybound watching you. Um if you are traveling through looking to see if you if you break any of the rules that they've established for you um they're they're fairly mysterious and um they're the most like the fey out of any of the elf races um 
because they could read you off a list of our clans, but that is meaningless in there unless yeah. you're actually playing in our game. Um, I'm trying to think anything else with that. I think the one other major note is mm -hmm. the clans are symbolized off of something like the the clan of the Ashen Wolf. The Ashen Wolf is a fey creature that exists. It's like a powerful fey entity that the clan works with, almost as like a secondary dragon, but different in its nature. And every clan has their own. Other fun fact is that the uh, Feybound are the most knowledgeable of the inner magical workings of the world. Uh, they are very tightly, well, I guess Feybound, they're very tightly bound to the, the magic system of the world. Okay. And know more about it than anybody. Um, I know we've been going for a while here, so I'll try to make this next one pretty quick. Uh, the Garden of Hope is like a Central Valley meeting place where the elves that were shattered after the Dwarven um, attack and the Sea Elf Betrayal um, hundreds of years ago, they kind of collected in this mountain range and named it the Garden of Hope. And that is where half-elves and elves, full-blooded elves, who have decided to step away from their respective elven societies, they often come here to have a fresh start and essentially, the, the rule of law here is when you enter the Garden of Hope, you have a clean slate. And it's your second chance. Even if you came here from a life of brutal murder, you are given a chance in this place. Um, but you're only given one chance. <laughs> um, but it, it's a land of second chances and a land of hope for a lot of elves and half-elves who are facing their various troubles. Okay. And then the last one is going to be the gnomes. I will try and be quick, but they're super interesting and I love them. Uh, so the, the gnomes have a society where everybody else kind of rages against the longing and this pull into the abyss. They've largely embraced it. And so the life cycle of a gnome is you are raised, you learn about a lot of, a lot of different things. And imagine the first 20 years of your life is just a giant trade school where you can kind of explore whatever at the end of the 20 years, you would decide on what you're going to go do. And gnomes are known for being the best at whatever it is they decide to do. And so they'd find themselves as advisors to uh, kings or governors throughout the world, uh, master metalsmiths or carpenters, um, sometimes even just the best bard in town uh, may be a gnome. And so they spend a good chunk of their life going and being experts on things until it is time for them to come back and have children. And so it's only within the last, uh, I'd say, 30 to 40 years of their life that they come back to um, Thelok, which is the name of their village. They'd have their kids, raise them, and then when their children um however many they have are ready to leave home um the, they actually all leave together the children will leave to go off and become masters in their trades and then the parents will go on think of the bucket list or farewell tour seeing parts of the world that they haven't seen visiting old friends before willingly uh going into the abyss most of the time before the longing ever begins to take them uh, they kind of take the the approach of living life to the fullest and making it meaningful and then accepting and choosing when it is their time to go. Okay. So that does seem 
in line with what you might expect for gnomes, at least for the super competent aspect mm -hmm. that you mentioned. They're very zen-like in their approach to life, and when you're raising that village, you have experts from all over the world who went out and blacksmithed with the dwarves and then came back as your your teachers. So you have incredibly proficient instructors to teach you any trade you want. So it's a really cool society. Uh, but that was everything in a nutshell. We obviously glazed over a lot of stuff, but there's too much to cover. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess, is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet? I mean, yes, so much, but... Uh, I do want to mention one thing. Go for it. So this is coming way back, like an hour ago, uh, when you were talking about stuff on the <laughs> I know sea. You're going with this. <laughs> um, you were asking if it's possible to sail out to sea, and like, is nothing stopping you? The answer is you can, but it's not a good idea. For one, there is no edge of the world. This is not a disc flying through space. It's a plane of existence. That sea literally goes on forever, um, and nothing lives out there beyond the, the first couple miles. So. You can sail out there. It's a death trap. <laughs> uh, but some people do it because there's various mythologies about things that exist beyond the horizon. Um, and so sometimes ships will sail, and then they will bring means of producing food magically and water, and they'll just keep going forever. And then they come back 60 years later, and the entire ship is filled with demonically possessed crew members and you have a ghost ship scenario uh, as they sail back to egress after sailing out and then being too far away to get back to the abyss <laughs> so didn't want to miss that one okay oh yeah uh, anything else besides that you guys want to talk about I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, I might put in a, a potential uh, selfish plug that we're, as you and I guess anybody listening can tell, me and Carson love this world like so much. It has been so much fun to create. But yeah, I think we covered all the the main things to hit, uh, without getting too trudged down into the details of everything because there's a lot. Yep. Um... Okay. Um... Well, my other typical question is, do you have any advice or were there any challenges that you experienced while DMing that you'd want to help out other DMs that might be getting started on with? Start <laughs> is yeah. the first thing. Uh, if you got an idea, just work on it, make it happen. Um, it's good to find a friend to talk to, even if you don't like co-DM. You could totally find a friend just to chat about and build a world together, even if you're running the game and they're not. As long as you're not building the adventure together, you're not going to have a problem. Uh, but this was brewing for a long time before it had any form at all. It was only when we just sat down and started brainstorming weird ideas that the momentum started, and here we are. I would say for anybody that's new starting, um, get a get a good group of people that you trust and you can have the open dialogue back and forth because um, there's going to be problems uh, with any game that you run. Um, takes a while to really get things going. So get some people that you trust that you can play with and, and just go for it. Um, for anybody that's been doing it for a while, I would say don't be afraid to try something new and just kind of go off on a limb. Uh, 
I think the other thing we could talk forever about is is game design and changing aspects of the rules, not not just because, but you know, very purposefully changing components of that to to fit a, a different play style. And I would mm-hmm. encourage people to do that, um, but to have an idea in mind of of what the goal is, not just creating a new rule because it sounds fun. And I think there's a, there's a lot more life in tabletop gaming. Uh, when you kind of tailor it for what you particularly enjoy. Yeah, the the goal as XP rule sounds very tailored and well thought out for what you have. Yep, and it was like, what is the goal of the game? We want to do dungeon diving, so let's build a world that facilitates that. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you guys. This has been really cool. Good chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Fun to have an excuse to um, do a world tour (laughs) yeah so do you build your own world for the game you run uh yeah for me yes i do um i'm a dm also and i'll be the dm for my group for uh, 15 more than 15 years Oh, he's got his beaten experience, Hayden. We're in trouble. I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the the game, the campaign that we're doing, we've been playing in the same campaign world for a long time. Not 15 mm-hmm. years, but uh, close to it. Um, which is based off of Greek mythology. Um, and currently, there are a bunch of orcs that are trying to unite the orc tribes to have them have a better place in the world instead of just being a bunch of like separate infighting groups classic storyline it'd be nice to have a a world to exist in for long long time like that really get to know it uh yeah yeah we've been um within the actual like world for time that's passed since we started playing in it it's been like 60 years Mm. wow we had a, a few time skips within that frame, but yeah, it's been... I like the time skip after a campaign ends. Yep. Let all the current heroes kind of go on and have their epilogue and then start with new ones. Yep, that's that's exactly what we've been doing. Um, so there's... Uh, the, like what, when I'm writing down the different things that happen, a lot of it focuses around like, okay, what was the... Terok's adventuring party during during this time because Terok was a character that went through each of the campaigns for a long time. Yeah. Cool to hear. All right, cool. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Yeah, thank you for doing it with me. All right, good night. Yeah, I've got one. Good night.